Jesus, we lay down our burdens this morning, any shame that we're carrying in our hearts, and we come before you broken, asking that you would renew us and refresh us in your word and refresh us by the power of your spirit. We thank you, Lord. We just come as we are, broken, needy, and we just expect from you grace because you promised that to us. And we thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just thinking back over my whole life this week. Yes, I can remember that far. It's weird when I say things like that because half of you are older than me and you're like, whatever. And the other half are like, you're ancient. And so I'm in this weird middle place, right? <laughs> I tried to count the number of churches I've been in over my life, um, and I'm just going to run down the list for you this morning. It, it was surprising to me when I stopped to think about it. I was born into College Park United Methodist Church in College Park, Georgia. Uh, we moved when I was eight, and I ended up at Point South Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Georgia, because my parents went there. Uh, Michael W. Smith was just getting started, and he, he played a private concert at that church where I, I got hooked on Christian music, and Michael W. Smith in particular wanted to be Smitty for a good chunk of my life. Um, the Rock Baptist Church in Rex, Georgia, because my friends were there in the youth group, and just a shout out, probably Chip King, my former youth pastor, watches every once in a while, volleyball wizard, God bless you, Chip. Um, I ended up at the Church of the Nazarene in Griffin, Georgia, doing a worship leader gig when I was in college. That was quite the experience, having been Southern Baptist primarily and sudden be, being in a Nazarene church. Um, if you know, it was culture shock, right? So um, <laughs> ended up in uh, a New Hope Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia, which was a 3,000, 4,000-member I mean, 3, uh, church there. That was where God called me into full-time ministry. And he was gracious enough to introduce me to my wife in that church. Um, we ended up moving to Athens, Georgia, and ended up going to Watkinsville First Baptist in Watkinsville, Georgia, where we actually pioneered their very first life group in that church. And we loved on the college students there, and that ministry with college students grew to about 500 college students before we moved out west. And we, we had our family there. We thought we'd stay there forever, and God had other plans. When we moved to the West Coast, we ended up at Smoky Point Community Church in Arlington. I was the worship pastor and young adults pastor, and I took on men's ministry, and I ended up being an honorary mops mom. You never go back. You never go back. And then Cascade Church was where I did my residency to plant, and then now Emmaus Road, where I hope to faithfully preach and serve until I'm dead, or until Jesus calls us to meet him in the year, whichever comes first. I'm, I'm counting on the medium in the air thing. 46 years, eight churches. And as I stopped to reflect on that this week, I've learned a great deal in, in those churches over those years. Um, there are many people, some of the things I've, I've, I've learned in the church, there are many people who are in the church who just want to have their ears tickled. That's not any particular denomination. It's not any particular church. It's just the church. I've learned that the larger a church gets, the more the pastoral staff struggles to say and do hard things. The bigger the church, the harder it is. 
And I've learned that God's people, though redeemed, still have authority issues. They still have authority issues. Now, I have worked with college students and young adults for 23 years, and among the guys in particular, as we have this conversation, many of them have ambition and desire to be in positions of authority, but almost none of them want to be under it. And there's this axiomatic truth regarding authority. Authority flows to those who take responsibility. It flows to those who take responsibility, and authority flows away from those who avoid and evade responsibility. You cannot be a good authority until you've learned to be under authority. And so this issue of being under authority seems to undergird our section of Ecclesiastes in chapter 8 this morning. And I think it's really important for us to wrestle with it, especially as 21st century American Christians uh, America, we, we, it's, a, it's an even bigger problem for us sometimes. So we're going to jump right into Ecclesiastes 8, verses 1 through 9. We're going to examine what it means to be under authority. So let's read through the text together this morning. Uh, Solomon begins, verse 1, Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face has changed. I say... Keep the king's command. Now, that's pretty self-serving for Solomon. (laughs) Because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt." So let's go back and look at verse 1 again. Solomon asks the question here. He says, who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face has changed. So so would you know a wise man if you just saw one on the street? What are the external marks of wisdom in the life of a wise person? Well, one thing that Solomon is telling us is that wisdom makes one's face to shine. So I think a lot of people are just, you know, we have stern, resting faces. Um, I'm trying to find the right adjective um, to go with resting face. And um, Solomon tells us that, that wisdom actually brightens one's appearance. So that hardness or stern appearance of the face has changed and softened. So if you've been looking for a cure to resting angry face, um, and you know who you are, then wisdom is the cure. And this is a good thing as one considers the next topic on how to relate to the king or, or a person who's in high authority. Uh, he says, Solomon says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. And be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause, for he, the king, does whatever he pleases. Remember, we defined that as sovereignty last week. 
uh, for the word of the king is supreme, and who can say to him, what are you doing? Now, a really good example of this is Nehemiah. If you go back, if you were with us, it's, it's been quite a while we studied through Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is this great bridge here from verse 1 to 2 and 3, and this example that he sets in his context And so uh, if you go back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I'll just read for you. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, Nehemiah says, I took up the wine and gave it to the king, because he's the cupbearer. He says, Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. So you got to understand, you are the first line of defense for somebody who may want to assassinate the king as the cupbearer. And if you're off, your mood is off, or your demeanor is off, th- the king might suspect you of trying to plot against him or do something to his harm. This is a very dangerous situation for Nehemiah to be in. And that's why it says he was very much afraid. And so um, if, if you've read through Nehemiah, you know that all of this turns out for good for God's people and that the king actually uh, asks Nehemiah to make a request of him and he ends up sending him back with a bunch of the exiles back to Jerusalem and, and how all that turns out. But this is an excellent example of how to relate to a king because the king calls attention to his sadness and his countenance. <coughs> Nehemiah could have been punished or dismissed or worse for even upsetting the king. And he's afraid because the king noticed his sadness. And so don't miss this. When the king notices, Nehemiah is not elated that his manipulative, overly dramatic mood was getting results and attention the way we kind of pout to get a response. That's probably not true of anybody in this room. We don't, we don't do that. But, but he was very much afraid. And this is a word, I think, for some of us who think we need to over-drama your face and manipulate your mate to get what you want. It's like, no, you don't. Uh, you better cut that out. That's not what Jesus calls us to. Paul, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 2. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear. I mean, he didn't try to hide it with much trembling. He was just being honest. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. He wasn't trying to manipulate people. It was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith wouldn't rest in man's wisdom, but in God's power. There's no threats, no pressure, no pleading, no visions of grandeur, no manipulation. Nehemiah just responds to the king's question in in honesty and humility. And so don't forget where the power is, right? For those of you who are just joining us, it's not in your face. (laughs) It's not your face. Be honest and be sincere. And the gist of this is when you're in the service of someone with that much power, you need to put yourself aside as frequently as possible because they're the one that's in power. And so we go on to verse 5. He says, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Now, verse 5 has a tie-in to Romans 13 thematically, which is the chapter in Romans that deals with governing authorities. <clears throat> and we'll talk about that in a little bit. God, God has ordained government to punish and restrain evil, according to Romans 13. There should be a healthy fear of governing authorities in the same way that one fears the Lord, though to a lesser extent. If you're doing what is right and doing what is good, you should not walk in fear of your government, ideally. 
Uh, but even, it, I'll just stop and say, if you're new to Emmaus Road, you've probably figured out that we are not in agreement or compliance with many of the edicts that have come from our governor. Uh, and, and if you read all of Romans 13, not just verses 1 and 2, where most people stop and misinterpret it, you'll find out that God did not ordain government to restrain or to punish righteous or good people doing righteous and good things. And so there's a, there's a healthy fear of authority and there's an unhealthy fear of authority. And a lot of Christians right now have an unhealthy fear of governing authorities. And, and so and we'll, we'll come back to this in just a moment, but I want to make sure you hear me say that, okay? And, and if you're here and you're maskless in the room, you're already on board, I think. But, um, but I, I just want to be clear about this because we're going to talk about government in just a minute. But uh, verse 6 says, for there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So a man's trouble lies heavy on him when there's an enduring need to address some concern, some moral issue, some situation, but it never seems to get addressed. It never seems to be the right time. And so that, that person will carry around the weight of that issue or that, that concern until it can be addressed properly. And even when it gets a hearing with the proper person, there's no guarantee that it's going to turn out well. There's no promise of that. So being under, authority, being under authority doesn't always mean that things work out for us personally. That's, that's what verse 6 is about. And then verse 7 says, For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. And so verse 7 just means no one knows when they're going to die. You don't know. You know it's going to happen. Now, this may be shocking to some of you. I try to say this often because I like to keep us thinking about eternity, but you do understand you are part of the ultimate statistic. Ten out of ten people die. I hope that's not a surprise. So what, what are you going to do about that reality? How are you going to prepare for that inevitability? Well, Hebrews 9 tells us, and just as it is appointed to man to die once, and then after that comes the judgment I'll just stop there because Solomon didn't know that whole truth. He didn't have the whole picture. But, but listen to the next verse in Hebrews 9. So, so it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen? What a blessing. Solomon didn't have the whole picture. Every person will stand before God and will give an accounting of his or her life. And the only, the only way in to the presence of God, the only right answer is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Solomon was perplexed by death. He was perplexed. He didn't know what to do with it, right? Um, but praise God, Jesus has power over death, and we will rule and we will reign with him, provided we put our faith in him. That's a tremendous promise to us. And so he goes on, he says, there's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So, so no discharge during a war. If you're engaged in a battle and you're like, I'd just like to go home and see my parents for a little bit, you, you might get furlough if the battle dies down, right? But 
but there's no discharge during war. The discharge happens before a war. Like uh, if you go back and read the book of Judges, you'll see Gideon under God's direction was dismissing uh, several of his troops who were scared and who failed the test as they stooped to drink at the brook uh, in the book of Judges, and, and they were dismissed. They were discharged before the war. And then there's a discharge that happens after the war when it's all done and over and finished, but there's no discharge during a war. That's called going AWOL. AWOL is absent without leave. You've not been given permission. It's, it's AWOL. So the parallel is the bonds of wickedness, which will not let you go while you are actively participating in sin and wickedness. Now, there's an escape hatch from wickedness before you ever engage, when you're still considering doing the wicked thing, the wrong thing, and we've all been there. Don't, don't, don't shake your head and no. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you do. We've all been there. When you're thinking about it, there's an escape hatch. And then uh, there's repentance afterwards if you're humble before the Lord and you're genuine in your heart and your repentance. But there's, there's, no, there's no way out in the middle of it. You're doing it. You're committing it. It, it, it. You're in it. It's too late. And so this also seems to tie us back to verse 3 here about standing in an evil way, which uh, could be taken or interpreted as a coup or an insurrection against the king. So in the light of verses 8 and 9 here, uh, we can safely infer that it's not a good idea to join a rebellion as it will deliver you, it will not deliver you from the future wrath of that king under, under a king. Uh, and then in verse 9, and we'll, we'll wrap up this section here. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So some kings and authorities rule with iron fists and bring hardship upon those who are under their rule. And some people have power over others and they use it to hurt them instead of build them up. Uh, the tyrannical ruler hurts not only others, but ultimately, Scripture says, he does harm to himself. And this is prophetic. Solomon's writing this, but he's, he, he's going to die, and then Rehoboam, his son, is going to take over. And that goes, that goes horribly. He splits the kingdom. So, so here's someone that's going to come after Solomon. He, he doesn't know this at this point, but it's going to do exactly what verse 9 says. It's not going to care for those who are under his stewardship. And in a fallen world, that's, that's all too common a reality, is that people in authority who should be caring for those under their stewardship don't. In fact, they only care about themselves sometimes, and that's detrimental to those who are under their authority. This whole thing's about authority, being under authority, right? So remember, as we began this morning, I said authority flows to those who take responsibility, and authority flows away from those who would avoid and evade responsibility, and that you cannot be a good authority until you learn to be under authority. Well, this is true in all three spheres that God has established, the home, the church, and the government. That's a, that, those are true truths in all three areas that God has established, the home, the church, and the government. So let's take a look at each one of these as our application today as we consider what it means to be under authority. And we'll start with the basic building block of any culture and society, which is the home. The home is founded on marriage, and godly marriage is between one man and one woman until death parts them. That's God's design. Any other version of marriage is not marriage, okay? 
One man, one woman, till death. And I'm convinced that should the Lord tarry, um, marriage will continue to grow into, I think, the primary apologetic in our culture. People are going to look at uh, godly, married couples raising their kids in the best way they can, trying to follow the Lord and go, what is that? What is that about? That's not the norm. That's not normal in our culture, right? That, that I think is going to be the apologetic as we go forward. And, and apologia is Greek, and it means to give a response or to give an answer. So biblical covenant marriage, the foundation of the home, will be so outside the cultural norms that people will wonder at it. And, and it will create opportunities for God's people to share the gospel just by living a faithful marriage. I believe that, should the Lord tarry. But within that context of the home, male headship is God's design for family. The Lord gave men to lead uh, to, to the lead role in the home, which does not mean that ladies, uh, women are any less worthy of, of any less worth or any less value. But it means that God gave the role of headship to the man. One of our distinctives at Emmaus Road is complementarity. And that just simply means, complementarity means that um, this, view, this view means that men and women are equal in value before God. There's no greater value being a man than there is being a woman. They're equal in value before the Lord, but they are not equal in their roles or assignments from God in the home. Men are called, called to be the head of the home, and, and women are not called to be the head of the home. Okay, That is complementarity, equal in value, unequal in roles. We are not egalitarian. Egalitarian means the opposite. Egalitarian is a view that holds that men and women are equal in value. We affirm that. But they're also equal in roles. And everything that the man can do, the woman can do. And everything that the woman can do, the man can do. And the, that does. this doesn't mean that women don't have important roles to play in the family. It, it just means they're not called by God to be the point leader in the home. That's it. That's it, Ephesians 5. In fact, I'll just read you a couple of verses here. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's unpopular. Um, submit to your own husbands. So you don't have to submit to every man in the church, every man in society. Submit to your husbands. As unto the Lord. Qualifier. Wow, you thought there was some wiggle room on this. No. For the husband's the head of the wife. Just as Christ is the head of his church, his body, and is his, in himself as its Savior. And as the church submits to Christ, so also, here's the parallel, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, ladies, if you're feeling a little overwhelmed by that, going, that's not fair. Those were three verses. Let me give you nine to the men. Right? Because there's a, there's, a, there's a heavy burden on the guys. It's not all on the women. He says, husbands, love your wives. Love them as Christ loved the church. Here's the, here's the example. Love them the way. How did Christ love the church? Well, he gave himself up for her. He gave up his preferences. Right, guys? <laughs> he turned off Sports Center and engaged with her. Uh, that might be, wow, that might hit home for somebody. That he might sanctify her. Her spiritual well-being is his concern. 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You're doing a service to yourself if you love your wife well, guys. Okay? He loves loves his wife, loves himself, for nobody ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and the two, he'll hold fast to his wife or cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He's, Paul says this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the, if you're married, you are in a one-act play. And, and husbands, you are playing the role of Jesus, and wives, you're playing the role of the church, and everybody's watching. And how you live your life in that relationship in your home speaks volumes to all the casual observers who are watching you about what Jesus is like and what the church is supposed to be. And you're either representing them well or you're not. That is the reality. And just to, just to make sure we get a little evenness here, a little fairness. I'll read you 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, because this, this is heavy on the women, light on the guys. I say light, like volume of, of, of verses here is inverted here. But uh, you, let me just read it to you. I'll shut up and read. Um, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, right, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives. <laughs> well, I'm going to read it again because that's powerful. So that even if they don't obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Your conduct, ladies, is powerful. Powerful. You don't have to, you don't have to say anything. You live consistently for Jesus. He says, don't let your adorning be external. And in a parenthesis, you could insert the word only. Because he, he gives the example of what he's talking about. He says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear. Clearly, he's not telling you to stop wearing clothing. So, so he's saying, don't let that be the thing that defines your beauty as a woman. He's not saying, don't, put them, don't wear jewelry. You can wear jewelry. You can braid your hair, right? Just don't let that be the thing that defines you. He says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And this is how the holy women of old who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by doing this. You ready? Here it comes. Submitting to their husbands. That's how they adorn themselves. Just as now, here's your example. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. Now, we tried that at our house. I can't get Jen to call me Lord. I don't, there's just, I've given up. Um, But Sarah, like, everybody's like, Father Abraham, he was so awesome. Like, he almost got him killed twice. Doofus. He made big mistakes. And, And God's saying, Sarah is the example for you ladies because she's married to a guy who makes mistakes, leads them into dangerous situations, from time to time, and is not perfect, right? You'll, she, he says, if you do what is good and don't fear that which is frightening. What is it that's frightening? Trusting your husband to lead your home is frightening. That's what's frightening. 
Likewise, <laughs> finally, here's the guys. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Gentlemen, did you know that your prayer life can be hindered by the way that you treat your wife? Your neglect, your lack of uh, love and investment in her can hinder your prayers to God? That's heavy. It's a big deal. So this is the home. This is God's design for the home. Biology bears this out with regards to the blurring of gender roles in our day, that the men are the head of the home and women are called to submit to their husbands. Husbands are called to lead sacrificially and love their wives. And so let me just say, with, with, with all the gender confusion in our world and our culture today when it comes to the home, dudes, you can stay home and be a stay-at-home mommy when your milk comes in and you're lactating. And until then, I don't, mommy, daddy, Maddie, whatever you want to call yourself, no, get up. Get up and go to work. Lead your family. Provide for your family. God created the family with intentionality and design. We don't have the authority to change that. And in the home, we are under his authority. We're under God's authority. That's the home. Let's talk about the church. Again, male headship is God's design in this sphere. And again, complementarity is the approach men called to lead in the highest offices of the church. The roles of pastor and elder are reserved for godly men who love and shepherd their families well as a first stewardship and then can be entrusted with more stewardship. Um, and so faithful stewardship in that first sphere of the home opens up a stewardship in the second sphere of the church. Jesus said to him who is faithful with little, more can be added. So guys that are not faithful stewards of their home, they're not leading their family well, are not going to serve in leadership roles in the church. That's just the reality. Here's a, here's a verse, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, that's you, <laughs> most of you, um, saints, saintly, uh, for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, until we all attain to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we're no longer children. He's talking about spiritually. Just tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather than being subjected to all that, we are speaking the truth in love and we're growing up in every way into him who is our head, who is Christ, from whom the whole body is joined together and, and held together by every joint with which is equipped. And when the whole thing is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that is what we want for Emmaus Road so badly. We want to be a healthy body that's growing in love for one another. On this issue of authority, uh, Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, he gives the qualifications for pastor elders at this level of leadership. He says they have to be above reproach. They have to be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. They need to be people who are hospitable and able to teach the Word of God. They, need not be, they can't be a drunkard or given over to violence or quarrelsome or lovers of money but they need to manage their home well. And be sub they, they need to raise submissive kids who respect their authority. Not a recent convert, and, and he adds, thought of well by outsiders. That's, that's a high office. That's a big deal. 
These roles and offices are given to equip you for the work of ministry, which is to say that uh, the work of ministry is your responsibility, not the pastor's. Right? I, I teach, equip, disciple, encourage. If there's going to be any impact in this community, it's, it's this group of people sitting right here that's going to make that happen. Right? If the gospel's going to go forward, it's this group of people right here that's going to make that happen. And again, on the authority issue, it doesn't mean that women don't have important roles to play in the church. It simply means they are not called by God to be the point leaders in the church. And God's intention was never for those, uh, those people or offices to come between him and you, like they would get in the way and interfere because there's only one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And God created the family with intentionality, and he, and he designed the church with intentionality. And we don't have the authority to change his authority structures that he's put in place. And we're under, we're under his authority. We need to obey his word. So there's home and then there's church. Those are two spheres. And then here's the third sphere. It's the government. God has ordained government. So what about this third sphere of authority that God has made on earth? Well, we've been given a unique stewardship in history. And the whole history of mankind on the earth, when it comes to political rule and government, we have been given a very unique calling as Americans. It's crazy how different this is. We're reading about kings and don't upset the king and it's good to be the king. That's Mel Brooks, not the Bible, sorry. We're reading about kings and then suddenly we're in this constitutional republic. How do we make sense of this? Uh, primarily, historically, governments have been mostly complementarian, by the way, which would seem to be reasonably deduced from the other two spheres. There have been exceptions. There are queens that have ruled without a king. Um, and, and then in our modern era, that, modern era that's definitely changed. Um, on this issue of women in government, I, I won't make a value judgment regarding women in positions of authority in the government. There are too many factors at play, I think. Instead, in this area, I've become a pragmatist, and I just judge all politicians and governing officials on their prevailing philosophies and whether they're actually getting anything done. Um, and if right now we have a woman in the role of governor of a state or if we have a woman senator or whatever, I, it doesn't bother me if they're, if they're getting it done and they're doing good things for our communities and they're leading well, okay? Because the Bible's not clear on that issue at the governmental authority level. So, um, I, I, yeah, I just judge them all based on whether they're getting anything done and whether they're doing good things. But to make matters more complicated, we, we don't live in a theocracy like Israel had. We don't even live under a monarchy. We live in this constitutional republic. And by the way, it's not a democracy. Democracy is code for mob rule. We live in a democratic republic. We live in a constitutional republic. Our founding fathers were wise enough to put a system in place that actually gives equal representation to people, whether they live in high-density urban areas or low-density rural communities. That was wise of them. Our context politically is unique in history. We are the government. We're not the governed. We are the government. If you're a citizen of the United States, you are the government. Our, 
it's, it's crazy to me how we've lost sight of that. Like, I think we have this aristocracy now that think that they're above the law and we are the peasants to be ruled over. And that's not true of every politician. Please don't hear me say that, but, but for a lot of them, West Coast, it, it, that's, that's their attitude. Um, our, our officials are elected for terms, which should have limits. I mean, some of them, <laughs> it's crazy to me, they've been in office for four or five decades, and then they're like, that guy didn't get anything done. I'm like, what have you done? What have you done? It's crazy to me. Um, there are some really good people in government, and there are some really nefarious people in government. And we, we can no longer trust our governing officials nor the means by which they're supposed to be elected. If we can't trust our election process, we're under tyranny because we don't have any way to remove them. You understand that? If, if we can't remove them peaceably, civilly, by the means by which our Constitution provides, then I'm not sure what we do at this point. Um, if you're new to Emmaus Road, again, we don't mask in worship and we sing loud our praises to God because Romans 13 is not a blanket edict on always obeying earthly governments. If it were, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the early Christians in the book of Acts, and our Chinese brothers and sisters at this very hour would all be sinning as they refuse to comply with unjustly earthly governments. They're not sinning. They're not sinning. Additionally, as a constitutional republic, every governing official in our land swears an oath to uphold the Constitution, which separates the powers from the, of the state and the power of the church in anticipation of moments exactly like this one. The governor does not have the authority to tell the church how we can and cannot worship. And I am... I am I'm blown away at how many Christians, pastors, are just laying down for this. It saddens my heart, and it makes me angry. Our governor doesn't have the authority to tell us how or whether or where or when we can and cannot worship God. It is outside of his purview and his authority to do so. And I feel this sadness for the Christian church. So many Christians who don't understand the truth of Scripture and continually, blindly comply out of abject fear. Listen, it's a fear of death. Hebrews 2 says that Satan has the, he wields the fear of death like a weapon. It keeps people in bondage. And I'm going, well, that's great for non-believers. That's, that's true for them. But I'm seeing it all in the church. They're, we're afraid of dying. It's like that was never not going to happen. It was always going to be the case that we were going to die at some point. I just can't wrap my brain around what I feel like I see, this deep sadness for the church right now. We need the Holy Spirit and power this hour to, to just come upon the church in a fresh way. We need to be on our knees in prayer. We need to be on our knees in prayer because in God's economy, the spheres of home and church are to and should inform and shape the sphere of government. And we've got it backwards at this moment. And we're letting the government dictate to the church and the home how we ought to be. It's backwards. What are we going to do about it? We will all stand accountable before God for our stewardship. And we are the government. 
We are not the governed. Well, what are we going to do? There's a prevailing truth that governs this reality in all three spheres, all three realms that God has made. This is, if, you don't, if you don't hear anything else I said today, hear this. This is, this is so important. There are two kinds of authority. Two, only two. There is authority of office and there's authority of character, and I'll delineate those two. Authority of office. Every father, by default, simply by virtue of being a father, has authority of office. Every policeman, every teacher, every principal, all of them have authority of office just by virtue of the role that they've been given in their context, okay? This is recognized and supported by Scripture even when the one who bears that authority is not up to par, is not doing it in a godly way. We honor the office even when it's not sufficient because Scripture directs us to do so. So when I get pulled over and I wasn't actually speeding, right? Not that that's ever happened. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be polite to the, the policeman. I'm going to, yes, sir. Yes, I'm going to, I'm going to comply because right? I respect the office. Okay? And so um, if you, you, when you, get, you, know, you may disagree if you get pulled over. You don't think you should be getting a speeding ticket, but you're polite to the officer anyway. Uh, so all husbands, fathers, pastors, elders, governing officials all have authority of office. But there's a second kind of uh, I think is a more powerful kind of authority, and it's the authority of character. See, this is the authority that we, talked about, we talk about that flows to those who take responsibility. It's authority of character. It's who they are in, inside, not the role that they play. That's where the authority is seated. A man in his home can be a dad, and can and does have authority of office, but if he doesn't have that spiritual authority and the authority of character... He's not going to be a good dad. He's going to be the dad that says, do what I say, not as I do. How many times do I have to tell you? That's, the, that's authority of office, but it's not authority of character. See, authority of office is like having a checkbook or a debit card, and you hold that card, and it has your name on the account. But the spiritual authority of character is actually having money in the bank. So you can have a debit card. It doesn't have any power if you don't have any money in the bank. You can use it, and they're going to take it from you and cut it up. And you can write checks when there's no money in the account. They're just going to bounce. So you've got to have authority of character. The one needs the support and undergirding of the other in order to function properly in the way that God designed it, to honor him. And when those in authority who have authority of office lack godly character, uh, they're devoid of spiritual authority, they're not investing in others, they're only de making demands and, and governing arbitrarily, they're committing fraud. It's fraud because there's no money in the account. See, they're, they're on a buying spree with that debit card, but there's no money in the account. They're writing checks that their character can't cash. So we've got lots of authority of office in our, in our culture today. We are, we are lacking in spiritual authority and in, in the authority of character in the home, in the church, and in the government. We're in a crisis because we don't have enough leaders who have authority of character. So this is a call to embrace the gospel again as the church of Jesus Christ, to say, Lord, what is it you want to show me about me? I've got this role, I've got this assignment, 
But is my heart reflective of that? Am I, am I building into people? Am, am, I, am I cultivating character and godliness in my life so that when I have to wield the authority of my office, it comes with the power of the Holy Spirit? That's the question. Moms, dads, you should be asking that question. You should be looking at your kids going, do my kids respect me? Am, am I building into them? Am I discipling my kids? I'm not just correcting them and yelling at them when they're wrong or they do something boneheaded like kids will do. Am I, am I actively investing in their lives so that when I have to say hard things, they respond to that, right? See, this is, this is imitation governs the world. Imitation governs the world. From the moment you were born, you learned everything you learned from the moment you were born by imitating. That's what we do with babies. I was, I was, Piper has Rose in the room this morning, and Rose is so cute, and I'm looking at her. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, because grown adults look stupid when they do this. And, and you're looking at the baby, and you're like, oh, you're so cute, you know. And she's like, and other adults will walk by and go, what's wrong with that person? But when you're talking to the baby, you're looking at the baby, it's just, you know, and they're, and they're doing it too. And they're, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they're, they're watching your face, and they're trying to do what you're doing. Because that's how we learn. And imitation governs the world. You read Psalm 115, uh, read Psalm 135. Both of those psalms tell us plainly that you become like whatever you worship. Whatever you worship is what you will become like. Are, are we looking to God? Are we seeing him clearly? Are we going to the cross to find clarity again and again as we serve and love our families, as we serve and love the church, as we, as we interact with our governing authorities? We can't refuse or neglect the Father and expect to have godly fathers. We can't neglect the Father and expect to have godly pastors and, and governing authorities. We've got to be engaged with His Word and in the Holy Spirit. We're in a crisis, and, and I'm afraid that it's such that we can't reverse it. We can't fix it. We can't escape from the necessary consequences. And even if that's true, if we can't escape this, what we can do is I think more powerful than all the collective might of the demons of hell. I, I, I think we can pray. We can stop and pray. And so that's what I want us to do this morning as we think about this. I, I, I th I've been thinking about this all week, and it just has me worked up. It makes me angry, and it makes me really sad. And, and so um, guys in the room go, yeah, I'd rather be angry. Uh, me too. That's my default. <laughs> right? It makes me angry, but there's this deep sadness about where we are as a culture. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't feel like I have the power to do anything about that. Wrong. Wrong. When we gather as God's people, when we link our hearts together in prayer and we go before the throne of grace with confidence, we have power. There is power. And so we're going to pray. We're going to pray uh, three, three sections here. I'm going to lead us. And just right where you are with your family and friends, just engage in prayer. If you're an out loud prayer, do it. If you're a, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray. Do that. It's okay. However you pray. Okay, we're going to pray for the sphere of the home, the sphere of the church, and the sphere of government. So um, let's go there right now. Jesus, we start by just coming to you to intercede on behalf of the home and our culture, families in our community who do not know you. They don't know that the, the way that they're raising their families may be neglectful or uh, is opposed to your word and your ways. They, they don't know. There's just so much uh, going on, Lord, that we, we don't have any control over. 
but you see it all and you are a great God and you're sovereign over all and you rule over all and we ask you to intervene in our culture in the sphere of the home. Lord, let it start with the church. Let us have healthy families who love Jesus. Let us be a body that, that values the family, that, that honors the father and mother in the home. And, and, and Father, we ask you for fathers, earthly fathers, who would lead and love well. And those are our prayers, Lord. So just take a moment right where you are and pray, pray through that. Father, we thank you. We know that your heart is for the family. We know that your heart is for fathers and mothers being on the same page, one in spirit, uh, loving and discipling their children, disciplining them when necessary, Lord. And we just, we know that as we pray that, that that's a prayer request that you delight to grant. So we also pray for the sphere of the church, this other area that you've ordained. And, and we ask you, Lord, this morning for rest for weary leaders, those who serve, not just at Emmaus Road and all the churches in our community. We ask that you would raise up new leaders who are ready to serve, Lord. And uh, Father, we, we are specifically praying uh, at Emmaus Road for uh, part-time admin in 2021 and another staff pastor in 2021. Lord, would you do that for us, we ask. Let's take a moment right where you are and pray into those things, please. Father, we lift up the other churches in our community to you this morning. Those who are meeting in person, those who are trying to make uh, the internet work in the best of to the best of their ability, Lord, we ask that you would flood them with your Holy Spirit, flood them with encouragement, you'd awaken them and stir them and call them in the power of the Spirit to stand in this evil day, Lord. And we trust you to meet the needs of this church, Lord, as we walk in faith in the days ahead. And Lord, we pray now for this fear of government to... Uh, you, would, you would cause those in roles of governing authority to uphold the oaths that they have taken. That you would expose corruption and fraud. That you would give justice to those who deserve it. And a national awakening of the loss and a revival in the church. Let's pray that right now. Father, we stop and we lift up Governor Inslee to you in Jesus' name. Lord, convict his heart. I pray you bring him to repentance and faith. Nothing is too overwhelming for you. Lord, all of our governing officials at the state level, the federal level, Lord, it all just seems like it's so far beyond our ability to influence or control, but you are a great God. You are over all. And we give it to you, Lord. Expose corruption and fraud and bring justice upon those who deserve justice. And give grace, Lord, when, they re when there's repentance and they turn from their wickedness. Lord, we pray for an awakening in our day. That many would come to know you for the very first time. And that there would be a revival in the church, Lord. You'd stir your people up. That they would set aside the fear of death and rise up in grace and in, in encourage, Lord, and stand in this evil day. And we trust you for all these things. There's not enough cheerleading to make that happen. There's not enough whipping people into a frenzy. We, we just can't make any of those things happen. It's got to be you. So we press into you. We, uh, 
We trust you. We give it to you. We lay it in your lap, Lord, and we just say, please help us. Send aid, Lord. Let your spirit fall mightily and heavily upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Authority flows to those who take responsibility. It flows away from those who evade responsibility. And you can't be a good authority until you've learned to be under authority. That's true in all three spheres, the home, the church, government. So strive in the Spirit to be men and women who operate from a deep well of the authority of character, regardless of whether you have any significant authority of office. Jesus told us to go in his authority and make disciples of all nations. And so we go under his authority and in the power of his name to make him known. Amen. Amen. Amaris Road Church, you are sent.